Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, and This man, Prince of Darkness. And we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs> you only have to have like 20 seconds of unbelievable courage sometimes. And then after that, you're free for good. You're free of that like big, scary thing. You only have to be terrified of asking for a raise one time. You only have to be terrified about like, oh, I'm not making myself available to my team while I'm vacation. I actually just want to take a vacation. You only have to be scared of that one time. And then you realize like, it's fine. I've set this up because I'm a confident person and I did this right. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Amy Guth. She's a Chicago-based writer, speaker, author, journalist, and all-around badass who has a really specific point of view about women in the world of work. Now, it's March, and all month long I've been bringing you badass conversations around this topic, and I wanted to end March with a bonus episode where Amy just lays it out straight, how we treat women, what's wrong, and what to do about it going forward. So I've got three pieces of advice for this bonus episode. Number one, sit back and enjoy it. Number two, take notes. And number three, make sure you connect with Amy on LinkedIn. Now, are you ready to end the month of March feeling energized about women and their badassery? Well, here we go. Sit back and really enjoy this conversation with Amy Goose. Hey, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Oh, it's just so exciting for me to have you. I've been a longtime follower and an admirer of your work. And before I start to gush about who you are and what you're all about, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and just give them a little taste? Sure. So uh, yeah, I'm Amy Guth and I'm based in Chicago. My background's in journalism and storytelling that manifests in the form of books and written work, broadcast work, films, event production that manifests in a lot of different ways. And it's all meaningful and good with a little bit of yoga, right? That's right. I actually have a very profound way that I got into yoga. In 2004, I was in a very serious car accident and pretty much messed up everything you can possibly mess up on the right side of your body. And I wasn't very mobile for about two years. It took a good five years to completely come back from that. When you have chronic pain, you tend to not be able to focus on much else than that. And so Western medicine left me with, here's a cane and a prescription for opioids. Good luck to you. Your, your bones have healed. But the tissue wasn't healed and the trauma wasn't healed. There was a lot going on. I couldn't stand upright and it was very uncomfortable. I couldn't sleep more than about two hours. And a neighbor of mine was getting yoga teacher training done at the time and said, why don't you come to this yoga class? So I went to a restorative yoga class. And the only reason I didn't storm out is because they took my crutches to get them out of the way. And I was stuck on a yoga mat. I couldn't even sit up. I couldn't do anything. And I was getting very frustrated and having some feelings. And the yoga teacher came over and she grabbed my face with both of her hands and she said, I just, I need you to just be where you are. 
today. And she rolled up a bunch of towels, had me lie down and just stuff these towels like under my knees, under my shoulders. And I woke up about two hours later and she said, you just seem like you needed to sleep. Like the class was gone, but I was there. And she was so kind to me at a time when I really didn't know anybody. <laughs> like I didn't have anyone around me to really support me at that time. And I made this promise to myself that I was not only going to create a yoga practice, but I was going to become a yoga teacher because I wanted to be ready the moment that that crossed my path. The minute someone came to me like that, so I teach yoga on the side, and that certainly makes me a lot less stabby, for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of things to be angry about in the world, but I think it's a wonderful balance to especially the last several years of journalism. I kind of focus on like trauma-informed, body-positive, inclusive yoga, because I think if you can control your own breath, there's yoga for you. There's an idea that it's all about twisting and turning, but it's, it's really just about breath and putting our bodies in a good position to heal and thrive. Well, you mentioned your career as a journalist. And before we get started talking about some of today's issues related to the workforce, I wonder what it's like to be living in the age we're living in, COVID, the election, the insurrection, the way we treat women and people of color, minority communities. So what's it like to live with that experience, but also cover it? I think it's not a big secret that a lot of people in journalism are having a mental health crisis right now because it's very hard to report on such deep trauma while also being traumatized. And I think that's the case for a lot of people, particularly female identifying journalists, particularly journalists of color. I'm heartened by what the Me Too movement has started in terms of conversations. A lot of newsroom leadership is white and male and traditional in certain ways. And I think not only is that something that needs to get updated just because it does, but it also informs coverage. You need a diverse perspective because it's going to shape coverage of the news that you're reporting. But it's been it's been a pretty fascinating couple of years or several years, I should say. None of us have seen anything like the last four years of the Trump administration. That was a whole other thing. And I clearly remember the first Valentine's Day after the inauguration, people were talking about plans that they had. And he fired off a tweet and everybody had to cancel their plans and stay because nobody knew how to cover that kind of stuff at the time and how to react and how to even manage it. There was a learning curve to just learning how to manage the fire hose, add in completely crumbling outdated social systems, even things like there's still conversations going on in newsrooms of the language that we use, of using ableist language or outdated sexist or racist language. And we really, I think, didn't start to have very mainstream conversations about even how we're covering female politicians until Hillary's pantsuits. And that's still something that's kind of being wrestled with. Well, you know, you've mentioned that you have this portfolio career that leans heavily on your expertise in media, but also has this creative aspect to it. So I wonder what that's been like, because we so often talk about the hustle as the dream. But for many individuals, the hustle is because that's all they can do to make ends meet. So can you talk a little bit about the role of the hustle in your life and how it plays out in the everyday ordinary Americans life as well? I think people are tired and I think capitalism is killing people. <laughs> and so I say that kind of just off the cuff. But what used to be, oh, goodness, times are hard. So and so had to get a second job. Now it's, oh, love the hustle embrace the hustle, do the side hustle thing. I mean, a good friend of mine, Leah Jones, has a wonderful podcast called Finding Favorites. And it's just about, hey, I'm going to interview this thing, not for the thing they make a living doing, but for the thing that they just have great passion about. So you might have like a web developer talking about a TV show. Every time I listen to an episode, I think I have monetized every one of my passions. 
I don't have something that I do just for the sake of joy. Even yoga, I teach that and I get paid to do that. So I think the hustle is a little tired. Even the language that we use to talk about the hustle is so violent and ridiculous. We talk about crushing it and killing it and like rocking your day. Like, how about you just have a beautiful day and have time to decompress? And we've so just glamorized the busyness. I call it the busyness epidemic. Even this year, we still tend to say things like, I'm so busy, I couldn't even lunch today. I don't find that endearing. In fact, I pulled someone aside one time who was consistently like complaining about how busy she was. And I said, I want you to know that you are kind of indoctrinated in some language, it sounds like. You're really attached to some busyness. But what it's making it look like here is that you, in fact, can't handle the workload. I would much rather you go, okay, donezo, and get up and leave at 530 than sit here all night and tweet about it. Like people always go, wow, you do so much. When do you sleep? I am a real bitch about that question. And I don't even try to be cute about it. I'm like, I sleep regularly and seriously. And if I don't sleep, I am a bitch and a half. I am the worst if I don't get my sleep. And I don't think it's funny to like, oh my goodness, when do you sleep? Because the thing you're conveying to other people, other women, younger women is you've got to sacrifice just your basic human needs to do the thing that that person is doing. And that is a bunch of bullshit in a very, very big way. I heard someone say this once and I've adopted it as my own and I don't even remember who said it, but everything I've done has been because of sleep, not in spite of it. I think sleep's important. I think self-care is important. I think we've glamorized this martyrdom that I'm really uncomfortable with. I think a lot of us got a lot of autonomy back by working from home. And I think there's going to be, I'm hoping anyway, there's going to be like a reckoning with, hmm, you know, guys, the hustle was kind of bullshit. Maybe we do something different after this. I believe in your reckoning as well, but I think there is something to your point about attachment to language. And maybe it's fear that if we're not busy, we're not going to be compensated. And maybe it's also this weird thing we have with the word slacker, which is a word that I love. Like, give me a slacker any day of the week, someone who gets their job done in like 25 hours and is on to the next thing, you know, that they want to do. And I would much rather have that person than, to your point, a martyr. So this concept of attachment is really interesting. What do you think about this idea of fear? though, that's driving a lot of this because people are afraid of losing their work, losing their connection to their boss, right? Losing relevance, losing their position on a team. I think fear is a very real thing. I have so many things to say about fear. I had a wonderful boss and mentor in my 30s that was so good at grabbing onto bad habits that were socialized in us and just ripping them right out of our guts and calling them out. Well, like how? This very kind of thing. She would Okay, well, um, I'm going on vacation. I'll be back in two weeks. I'm not going to be reachable. What if there's an emergency? What kind of emergency is there? We're not doing rocket science. You're not operating on someone. No one's going to die. It's going to be fine. Like if it's that big a deal, I think I hired you because you're smart and you can figure it the fuck out. Like that was kind of her attitude. She was very direct. She did martial arts that threaded through a lot of things she did. I had this male colleague who was driving me absolutely bananas. And he was really being a complete mansplainer, but he was a chicken shit about it. Like he was really a tough guy behind email, but he would just dodge everybody. And he really, really insulted me one day and I was ranting to her and she pushed me off an elevator, like the door open on that floor. And she was like, walk up to his desk and just say, I want to talk about the email you sent me and then shut your mouth. Don't say another word. Don't be the woman that feels uncomfortable silence with your talking. Just say what you're here to say and then shut your mouth. And I did that. And that guy folded and he became a kitten. 
like the rest of the time I worked with him. He was like, hey, that project was good. Can I help you do that thing? He was so nice after that because he realized I'm not going to take this crap. So she just like had this very instead of let's talk about it for three weeks and make a bunch of ways to get around this problem. Go right to it. Go right at it and just address it. And I think that's I mean, to circle back around to fear, I think that's a lot of how I do things, too. I think there's a lot of power in just walking through the door of fear, because once you've walked through it, the door falls apart. It's no longer there once you've done that one terrifying thing and you no longer are afraid of that thing then. You've grown whether you realize it or not. So I think you only have to have like 20 seconds of unbelievable courage sometimes. And then after that, you're free for good. You're free of that like big, scary thing. You only have to be terrified of asking for a raise one time. You only have to be terrified about like, oh, I'm not making myself available to my team while I'm vacation. I actually just wanna take a vacation. You only have to be scared of that one time. And then you realize like, it's fine. I've set this up because I'm a competent person and I did this right and it's okay. I hired the right team and it's fine. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman, author of Betting on You, how to put yourself first and finally take control of your career. Dan Pink is a New York Times bestselling author. He says that betting on you is indispensable reading for anyone seeking to improve their professional selves and attain that elusive work-life balance. Jesse Itzler is an entrepreneur and also a best-selling author. He called Betting on You the ultimate insider guide that will inspire anyone to wake up, take that first step towards change, and finally have a thriving career that connects purpose and passion. You're not surviving a pandemic to live life like it's 2019. Want to fix your career? Pick up a copy of Betting on You today anywhere books are sold or head on over to bettingonyoubook.com. Now remember, support your local bookstore or go to bettingonyoubook.com. So Amy, You've been reporting on issues facing working women for many years. And what was the state of life like for these women before the pandemic? You know, I think there's so many ridiculous double standards that still are so alive. I mean, one that I've shared many times, I had a role that was previously only held by men. And my immediate predecessor was like Mr. Cool, casual guy. And he always wore like a rock t-shirt and jeans with a blazer over it. And I was like all suits. I'm all in on this job and whatever. And on one Friday, I wore like a very nice blouse, jeans and a blazer. And my boss, also a man, he was like, wow, we're really going for the casual Friday, aren't we? And I was thought like, wow. And then like my predecessor barely even wore shoes sometimes, but he was a cool guy and that made me a slacker. And so I think it's very important to be aware of that double standard. And where I see this the most is this narrative around women in negotiation. I am here to tell you that if you have ever walked down the street at night and thought about what I will do if X happens, don't tell me you don't know how to negotiate. If you have ever gotten a picky toddler to eat, you know how to negotiate. If you have ever navigated a relationship and or broken up with somebody or divorced them, you know how to negotiate. So this idea that we don't know how to negotiate is absolute horseshit. What it is, I believe, is that we are quite good at reading the room and knowing the consequences facing us. So it's not that anyone's afraid of negotiating per se. It's that like, man, if I ask for that number, I know he's 
he's going to think I'm a bitch and a half and he's going to be so nasty to me and he's going to judge me about it. It's that. This narrative that women don't know how to negotiate only keeps us not negotiating as long as we run around saying that. So, I mean, I think it's stuff like that, right, that like keeps me awake at night of this like very double standard that is still very present. Now, we have a whole other problem on our hands because the pandemic has disproportionately affected women and particularly women with children because, look, everybody had to make some hard choices in the last year and a half, right? Or last year. Not everybody. You women, right? And parents and, you know, there's a certain segment of our society, but there are still these men out there, believe it or not, and I know you believe this, that are skeptical. Like, is it that bad? I heard Joe Biden say it was a national emergency, but is it? Is it? Right. And there's still a lot of men that lean on this like, well, what rights don't you have? Like, it's not legal. Like, we're not talking about a legal issue. We're talking about death by a thousand cuts. We're talking about not getting invited to the meeting. We're talking about getting invited to the meeting, but asked to make a copy or asked to like, hey, we take notes. Like it's little things like that. It's these microaggressions. And about probably two years ago, I was on a panel about women in the tech sector. And we were talking about, I should say, I am obsessed with semantics because I think they matter huge, huge, huge. And we were talking about using male privilege. There's a lot of men in the audience. And this guy stood up and did the classic, like, less of a question, more of a comment kind of thing that bros do. And he said, well, I just want you to know that when men are talking over women in my company, I stop and I say, hey, Brad, let her talk. And I said, okay, well, that's cool that you do that and that you recognize like Brad's being terrible in that moment. But let's talk about the word let, because the word let implies it is your power to bestow and not that Mandy has the same authority in that room as you or Brad. And so if, why like all the women start nodding and all the guys are like, what's the difference? It's the same thing. And I'm like, no, the difference between, hey, let her talk and hey, Brad, Mandy was talking two very different things. One is using your privilege to help Mandy show her agency. The other one is saying, I, man in power, am telling this other man in power to bestow unto Mandy a moment, lady, you know. So Amy, whose responsibility is it to teach that lesson to, you know, Brad and to all the other bros out there between the ages of like 24 and 55? You know, the young men I think coming up are having a completely different experience around masculinity and life and race and gender. But there is this meaty middle of dudes who, Maybe they get it, maybe they don't, but they don't consistently get it. Well, look, the patriarchy hurts us all, right? The same thing that pushes a bunch of gender roles on women or the same thing that says like, hey, if you cry, you're not a man. And I think it's really interesting that recently a lot of people have been talking about this because of the way that Prince Harry was so emotionally available and talking about mental health in the interview with Oprah. And I think a lot of men noticed that. I saw a lot of men tweeting about that. I saw a lot of women saying, hey guys, that's how to model masculinity that is open and emotional right there, which I thought was really interesting. So I don't want to say that women should be teaching men because it's not at all up to me to do the emotional labor to teach a man how not to be a sexist douche. I think that's really important. It's up to each of us to decide who you want to be and how you want to show up in the world and do that kind of work. Whether you're like, what does it mean to be an anti-racist ally? How am I going to do that? What does it mean to use my privilege in a certain way? How can I do that without being an idiot and without alienating people? I think there's a lot of ways. I think one that I see a lot is the way that men reprimand other men. One in particular time, I heard a male colleague, he was a supervisor, though not my supervisor, reprimanding another guy on his team. 
for like a comment he had made to a woman that made her feel uncomfortable. And it wasn't, hey, so-and-so, you said something inappropriate. It was, hey, listen, you know, Janet over there is kind of touchy about the thing you said. Can you just like steer clear from her? It was very much in this vein of like, we know Janet is tripping. Can you just be cool, please? The true test of being a male ally is, will you stand up for women when there are no women in the room? I mean, it's one thing to do it if I'm sitting there giving you a dirty look. It's quite another. It's like, hey, that's really sexist and inappropriate. And I know some men that do that. So I think it's up to men to model it. I think it's up to all of us to like ruthlessly interrogate the ways in which we're socialized and say, am I showing up in the world the way I want to be? We've just gone through a period of rapid social change and we're still in the middle of it. We're still doing it. I don't think that's going to let up anytime soon. And there were two reactions, right? Or three. One is apathy of like, that's not my group, so I don't care. Then there's, wow, I have some feelings and I need to grow from this and I need to listen and shut my mouth and just listen and maybe use my privilege to make space for the people that need to be heard right now. And then there are people that are so threatened by change, they push back in a very bold way, right? There's people that say like, your pronouns are whatever you're born with and darn it, I'm gonna stick with that, right? There's like people that are really attached to that. There's people that are really attached to racist narratives that they don't even believe are racist or sexist or whatever. So I think like when challenged with change, people either dig their heels in because they're very threatened or they go, okay, I need to learn right now. And I saw a lot of people saying, okay, I need to learn right now. But I also saw a lot of people digging in, which is all to say, I think it's up to us to just say, okay, I need to be like student mind right now and just listen and not go to women or people of color and say, teach me how to be an ally. Everybody's got Google. You can just do that. And that's a thing. And just figure out, hey, what's one thing I can do right now to to start modeling better behavior? And that's hard work. I'm not going to say that's easy and it's just a Google search. Like that's not a small task, but I think it is a lifelong process of trying to be your best self. So as I think about solutions out there, you know, I love this idea of individual accountability. It's something that I preach around self-leadership. Sometimes when someone opens the door for you anyway, you miss the lesson in all of it unless you open the door and you discover it for yourself. So I'm all in on self-leadership. What I thought was interesting over the past year is that corporations in their own clunky way tried to step up. All right. They tried to do the right thing. They tried to show allyship or understanding or compassion or empathy on a whole host of topics. And some were great and some completely blew it. So do you have any thoughts, any observations, any stories from your reporting on corporations that you thought might have done it right? Anybody that you thought did it wrong or just any thoughts in general about the role of the company in affecting social change? Well, I mean, we have a great example just right now that on International Women's Day, Burger King came out of the gate and said women belong in the kitchen. And what they were promoting was like only 20 percent of the culinary you know, leaders are women. And that's a great, noble thing to do. And Burger King indeed has a like brand identity as being kind of this little snarky, little smart ass. And that's totally what they do. But they really stepped in it and people were really pissed off. It was totally, I thought, a very not enlightened use of translating a message across different platforms because the print ad had an explanation beneath it. The tweet that went from like the Burger King UK account just said women belong in the kitchen. No explanation. 20,000 people like knock the crap out of them immediately on Twitter and like, what's the matter with you? Is the upside worth the downside? Sometimes absolutely it is. Yes, it is. It is worth telling off your boss who is a jerk and being sexist or whatever. Totally. And become a folk hero 
God bless. But other times like, no, it's actually, it would make you feel better, but it's not worth the downside. I wish brands did that every single time. Okay, this is funny and it's kind of cheeky and it's going to get a lot of people's attention. Is the upside worth the downside? In which case someone would have been like, no, probably not. I would love to see the demographics of the team that thought of that because who knows? I'm sure there was a woman in the mix somewhere, but there's also like, there's another emotional labor thing. If you're like the token on a team, you're always the one sounding that alarm and that is exhausting. Also detrimental to your career, right? If you're the Debbie Downer or the Don Downer in the room, nobody wants to collaborate with you. You're seen as someone who's constantly negative. You're an impediment to growth and change. And I've been that person. I was the only woman in a meeting and we had had several meetings about this particular ad and how this campaign was going to go. And we get to the creative and it was all men. And like, I go, it's all white guys. And the leader who was my boss at the time said, oh, no, no, no. There's like a, a brown guy there in the crowd. I'm like, that's you're ridiculous. I said, but this product is for men and women. Like this is a news product and we need to not be doing this this way. And he was like, OK, Gloria Steinem, we'll fix it. And I was cut out of that meeting. And that ad went without me and without my feedback. And it ended up having men and women in the final picture, but I didn't have any say. And it was just like, get this out, you know, get her out of here. Absolutely, there's like a detriment to your career. But, but I think that's why we all need to like, take a minute with ourselves and try to show up our best selves because that's also why diversity is very important because a don't want to be like the only person sounding that alarm over and over again you need like an echo chamber of voices going hey no i also think that but i think that's also workplace culture you know there's plenty of places where you might have many female allies but you know you can't say a thing so i wonder as we start to wrap up the conversation if you are optimistic or pessimistic about the world of work and i hate binary thinking anyway but it's always interesting to just frame it that way and see where it goes. So how do you feel about the future of work? I don't do a lot of absolutes, but I would say I'm definitely more optimistic than pessimistic because this last year has told me that we can change if we want to. We just haven't wanted to for a long time. Early in the stay home time, I saw an activist on Twitter who does a lot in the disability activism space. And she said, so here's the thing. You guys could accommodate us all along. You just chose not to. And now we've realized we can all work remotely quite easily. And we did so in a remarkable time. So it is my hope that we come out of this having done some soul searching. And I think we need that, frankly. I think that we need to have left this year or however long this ends up being. It needs to have meant something. It can't just be, and then I lost a year. For it to count in our psyche, it needs to have done something to us for it to have felt meaningful for the things that we took for granted that we used to do. I have a colleague who said something really beautiful. There's a lot of language around the pandemic I resist, but one of them is new normal. I hated that from the minute I heard it. And he said that he and his wife are saying desired normal. And I love that. I loved that right away because it was a moment to go, you know what? Actually, it didn't take much to get set up to do broadcast from home. And now I don't have to go studio to studio and then place to place to place. And actually this happened and I did this remotely and this worked and this one little piece of software solved this problem. And I haven't left the house in three weeks and, and that was to go to the grocery store. Like I think it forced us to be creative. And anytime we are forced to be creative, we are masterful and we are powerful. And we did that. And so I hope that we leave this time, whenever that is, whenever we're good and ready, saying, hey, you know, I did a lot of soul searching during this time and I came out better. I realized the work style that works for me and I realized what was important to me. And I realized 
what level of presence, physical presence I want in the world and what level of agency is important to me, what level of autonomy, how I want to work, how I want to dress while I'm working, what time of day I want to work. When is my brain firing the best? Because I don't believe everyone's brain just clicks into action at 9 a.m. Like some of my best ideas have pulled me out of the bed at two in the morning to say, write this down right now. Here is this huge idea. Go take it and run with it. And I think we need to be open to that. And so I'm optimistic because I hope that we've had time to all kind of get our footing and say, you know, that actually doesn't work for me. And we're seeing that. Like we have more sublease space available in Chicago than we have in years. It's record-breaking because companies are going, I don't think we're going to need 500 desks. We might need 100 or maybe we just need common space. I'm optimistic and fascinated to see all the ways that we have adapted in the last year and how they're going to stay and stay with us and what that's going to do. Because 2021 to me feels like the other side of a hinge. Like 2020 had to knock a lot of stuff down and 2021 feels like the, the year to build it back up in the way that we want. And I think if we go back to the way that we had it before, we lose because we we learned nothing from this. And not that it came in to teach us a lesson, but we've done a lot of hard things. And to come out of that completely not changed, it would be a disappointment to me. I, for one, have no desire to go back to exactly how my life was before the pandemic hit. No desire. And I said that like two months in, I was like, you know what? Don't miss it. Don't want to go back. I want this new way. I like this. And I hope that becomes widespread. So for that, I'm very optimistic about the future of work. Amy, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks again for being a guest on Punk Rock HR. My pleasure. Anytime. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.